LeeTDickey.com. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode, the first episode of the Beats and Speaks podcast in 2020. Of course, I am your host, Lee Dickey, and today I'm going to do something new. It's going to be a solo show where I review a podcast episode from one of my favorite shows, Talk is Jericho, and that is his recent interview with Vince Russo. First and foremost, I want to say Happy New Year since this is the first episode of 2020. We are starting off a new 10-year stretch, a new decade, so Happy New Year. But today we're going to, I'm going to review and give you my opinion on the Talk is Jericho episode with Vince Russo. But before I do that, I want to tell you where you can find the Beats and Speaks podcast. New episodes of the Beats and Speaks podcast go live every single Friday at midnight Eastern time on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. We're also on my official website, LeeTDickey.com, YouTube under Lee Dickey TV. Please do like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you want to be a guest, please do email me at LeeTDickey at gmail.com. All the information is in the description down below. Follow me on social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at LeeTDickey. Again, all the information is down below. But let's get into my review of the Talk is Jericho episode with Vince Russo right here on the Beats and Speaks podcast. All right, so yes, Vince Russo on Talk is Jericho as told or at least as listened to and from what I could gather from yours truly, Lee Dickey, right here on the Beats and Speaks podcast. So some of you may not know this, but... I am a huge wrestling fan. I have been watching most of my life. I've intermittently between the ages of like two until about 10. And then I started watching more full time in about 1999 and have been hooked ever since. So most of my life, I've been a wrestling fan. There was a point in my life where I actually wanted to be a wrestler. And then gravity took over and decided to kick my ass. So... Let's just talk about it. Vince Russo on talk is Jericho. Now, he says that wrestling is story-driven. Now, Russo, if, for those of you that don't know, is a former writer within the business. Writer, producer. He got to start with WWE in, I'd say, like the mid to late 90s and then moved to WCW and was there until, I think, they closed in 2001 and were sold to the land of McMahon and WWE. But he says wrestling is story-driven, and from his point of view, he's a writer, he's right. In my opinion, he's right. Now, I know a lot of you, a lot of the, I, I suppose, internet wrestling community and a lot of wrestling fans in general aren't fans of Russo, and I'm going to try and sort of give you arguments from both sides of the coin, but I can only give you the arguments, I suppose, from like the way I see them and, you know, from my vantage point after listening to the show two or three times over. So he says wrestling is story-driven. And from a writer's point of view, he's right. It is. Wrestling, yes, it's choreographed violence, but the results are real. 
the hits they take are real. Yes, you can pull the punches, you can choreograph the kicks and the splashes and whatever sort of physical punishment you inflict on each other, but like things happen, right? So wrestling, it's story. It's basically a choreograph, I don't want to call it a ballet, but a choreographed dance between two or more people within a squared circle, within a wrestling ring, that has a story behind it. And now I can cite an example. If you can use this example with, say, mixed martial arts and with wrestling in general, where if I think Paul Heyman said this on an episode of the MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani years ago. You have one person in one corner and then another person in another. These two people are about to fight. Why are they here and why should I care? It's the same thing with wrestling. It just, you had, say, you take Stone Cold Steve Austin and Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. You take those two people. You take The Rock or Hulk Hogan. You take anybody on, and you put them on either side of a wrestling ring, but do they have a story behind it? Did, is there a buildup? These two people are in a ring. They're about to have a fight. Yes, it's choreographed. Yes, it's wrestling. But they're in a ring, and they're going to have a match. So why are they here? Who are they? And why should I care? What brought them here? Why am I interested? Why am I hooked? That's all part of the story. Okay? Then you have another point where wrestling is a spectacle. Again, he's right. Wrestling is a giant spectacle. Now, if you take what Vince McMahon himself said in... Beyond the Mat, which was was released in, I think, 98 or 99, maybe even 2000, something like that. It, somewhere within that time frame, somewhere between 98 and 2000, he just, he says, we make movies. Like, it's, he, like, your wrestlers are performers within a live film, so to speak, within a live production. And, again, everything's choreographed, from your promos to... I'm sure you had a lot more freedom back in the back in the old days of wrestling, say between uh, like the 60s or the 70s, up until about the internet's existence or the internet's hold on wrestling took over back in say like the mid 90s to like early 2000s and now beyond that. Since most of everything we hear from wrestling, if you are into the behind the scenes and what's going on, is on social media and the internet now. But McMahon himself said that. Wrestling is a spectacle, and they make movies. It is a giant play. It is a giant live production with real-life people who are performing in front of a crowd. Yes, they're athletes. Yes, they're entertainers. So, yes, it's sports entertainment, but it is a spec. It's a spectacle. Like the- WrestleMania is the WWE's biggest pay-per-view. It is huge. Fireworks, grand entrances, the biggest names within the WWE within sport within entertainment. I mean, they had Floyd Mayweather versus The Big Show in 2008. Like, Floyd Mayweather was involved. They've had people like Pamela Anderson involved, Jenny Garth, you name it. They've had the who's who of wrestling, William the Refrigerator Perry, Dick Buckus. They had, they've had so many people from sports, entertainment, from all walks of life. Lawrence Taylor was in a match with Bam Bam Bigelow. I think that was WrestleMania in 1995. It is a giant spectacle where you have celebrity, you have wrestlers involved, and it is a giant sort of 
amalgamation and meeting of the two worlds come to life. And that's part of the spectacle of professional wrestling. So again, to that point, Russo's right. It is a spectacle. I mean, you can love the guy or hate the guy, right? But when he went over to WCW, yes, wrestling in, say, the late 90s when they started to go towards the Attitude Era, at least within the WWF, WWE, it was it was crash TV. It was all over the place. You had the 24-7 rule for the Hardcore Championship, which is now basically the 24-7 title within the WWE these days in 2019-2020, because as I record this, it's just before the new year. So it's it's just one of these things where everything was all over the place. I mean, he booked a match where, I, I forget Buff Bagwell's opponent, but Buff Bagwell's mother, Judy Bagwell, was on a forklift on a pay-per-view, okay? You can, you know, crap all over it if you want, right? Discount it if you want. Discount his... Uh, contributions to wrestling if you want but at least he tried right he tried to write the ship right everybody well he didn't have a filter when he went over to wcw okay fair he didn't have a filter but you're not gonna and i'm gonna use a baseball analogy you're not gonna make contact with the ball if you don't swing the bat you're not gonna get a strike right if you don't throw a good pitch so you actually have to try things in order to see if they're successful, okay? And Russo, in this episode of Talk is Jericho, even said, I'm a writer, I'm not a wrestler, okay? So he's focused on writing stories and focused on getting in the minds of the performers, whether it was Jericho, uh, somebody debuting like at those at that time, say like the Dudley Boys or Edge and Christian or like the Hardys. You know, the young guys that were around in the Attitude Era, right? So, to that end, at least he tried. Okay, Judy Bagwell on a forklift. Sure, it's crazy. It's a crazy idea, but he tried it. And he said that if somebody saw that, they would they would stop, right? Because that's not normal. You don't see that in your everyday wrestling show. Usually it's announcer, performers, put them in a ring, wrestling match. You don't see things like... Let's put somebody's mother on a forklift on a pay-per-view and let them have a match. Now, you can discount the fact that he put the WCW title, the World Heavyweight Championship, on David Arquette. But from a writer's point of view, right? Now, I'm going to mix some of the things that he said in this podcast and some things from my own perspective. So, they didn't go over David Arquette winning the WCW title. I'm just going to throw this in there. If you take from a writer's point of view which is what he was your as a writer your job is to write the story which then in turn gets you the the match the angle it gets you hopefully higher ratings which brings in more ad revenue which basically means more money for everybody right and you know with him going to wcw and then in the year 2000 putting the wcw world heavyweight title on David Arquette, and he says, well, it made the cover of, I think it was USA Today or Us Weekly, one of those two. It made the the cover, right? And from a writer's point of view, you want outside eyeballs, you want new viewers, you want to increase your audience. And that's, I can only assume that's what he was trying to do. I mean, and keep in mind, he said something else, and I'm talking Russo, on this episode of uh, Talk is Jericho, where 
we're still talking about things as wrestling fans that he did 20 years ago, like the Judy Bagwell on a forklift, or the Viagra on a pole match, or one of the things that I remember from my um, limited viewing of WCW Nitro, at least, as I'm up in Canada, and I'm not even sure how the Canadian broadcast rights worked for WCW Nitro or any of its other properties, like Thunder or Saturday Night, which was the show that I saw more of when I was when I was younger, was uh, Saturday Night. But if you take the fact that Russo was a writer and his job is to write story, and he put the WCW title on David Arquette, and it made the cover of a magazine, and he, all he's trying to do is increase viewership, which increases audience, which increases ad revenue, which increases paychecks for everybody. Everybody makes more money if more people watch the show, because then that means more ad revenue comes into the company, right? I mean, say what you will about the guy, but he tried, right? You're trying to increase the size of your audience. Now, you can, if you're a wrestling purist, you hate that kind of stuff, okay? You hate the fact that David Arquette was the WCW champion, okay? You hate the fact that Judy Bagwell was on a forklift. You hate the fact that he came up with things like the skins match at Super Brawl 2000. You hate the Viagra on a pole match. You hate all these crazy gimmicks that he came up with, okay? You don't like this stuff if you're a purist, if you're a wrestling fan. But wrestling is a choreographed soap opera. It is a choreographed sort of serial show. It is a choreographed television show with scripts, production staff, writers. That's basically what wrestling is. It's two people playing their craft who are professional wrestlers, but they have a story as to why they are there. It's not just, let's throw these guys in a match. Like, if it was, say, like, you know, like a Sunday Night Heat or just a match on Raw, right? I can understand two people getting in the ring. I mean, if you watched Saturday Night back in, say, like the early to mid-90s, even into the, well, even during its entire run from, or, or the run from, say, like the, the 80s all the way up until the time that WCW was off the air, it was just, here is Jobber X. And I mean, like a Jobber in terms of wrestling, is the underneath guy. He's the guy that gets beat up on TV. And it's so-and-so, like Joe Smith from Evansville, Indiana, or something, or Elkhart, Indiana, or wherever, right? From Louisville, Kentucky. Joe Smith, and he's taking on somebody who comes out with an entrance, say, like, this is Ice Train from WCW back in the day. And keep in mind, Ice Train was one of my favorites, you know what I mean? So... Obviously, the uh, Joe Smith is the one that's getting pinned, and there's not much of a story there, other than the fact that, like, if you had somebody like Ice Trainer, you had somebody like, I don't know, Van Hammer that went over, I don't want to call it a rub or whatever you want to say, it's just one of those things where the more established guy is the one that's getting the victory, right? There's not much of a story there other than, here comes this established guy, he's going to beat up this unestablished, you know this underneath guy, and that's their match. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. But for the most part, wrestling is two people that get in a wrestling ring, have a match, whether it's on, you know, a television program like a Raw or a SmackDown or AEW with Dynamite or a WCW with Nitro or ECW's programming. I, you know, whether it was ECW on TNN or any of the other stuff like ECW on Sci-Fi when the WWE decided to launch them as a third brand. It's two people in a wrestling ring 
you know, especially on pay-per-view where it's these two people are in a wrestling ring. These two people are going to have a match. Who are they? Why are they here? And why should I care? That is proper build. That is how do you like that's how you get people to watch. That's how you get people invested. That's how you get people to care. That's how you sell. Okay. And again, they, they talk about Mike Awesome, the, the late Mike Awesome, who was fantastic for a guy his size. He could move. Okay. He could move. And, you know, when you're doing like suicide dives and like through the ropes and everything like that, for a guy his size, that's impressive, right? Like just go back and watch his match at One Night Stand 2005. Great, right? Like a guy his size shouldn't move the way he did. But when he got to WCW, one of the gimmicks that Russo, I suppose, gave him was the fat chick thriller. Now, of course, Mike Awesome is no longer living. And according to his colleagues and fellow wrestlers, didn't like the gimmick. But according to Russo, his wife at the time loved the gimmick. So, like, what do you do, right? And it, it's just, wrestling's about story. It's about spectacle. It's about, it's, it's a combination of story, spectacle, athleticism, and, you know, gain, you know, sort of increasing a performer's popularity, increasing a wrestler's popularity. Whether it's through the booze, because that's how you get a heel over, or the cheers, because that's getting a baby face over. It's just, that's, I don't know, I could be completely missing the mark, and you guys could call me an absolute Russo mark if you want. I don't necessarily care. And again, uh, I am going to syndicate this on my wrestling podcast, Pinfall of Pro Wrestling Podcast, which is available on all podcast platforms, as well as my official website, LeeTDickey.com. But, I mean, spectacle, story, two people in a ring, two or more people in a ring that are vying for a prize, and why are they here, who are they, and why should I care? That's, in, I suppose, in my head, that's how wrestling works. And then he goes on, we, you know, and I'm jumping ahead a bit to where he says, like, there's no, back when he was writing, say, Raw, you know, the WWE's flagship show, they used to end on cliffhangers. You had to tune in every, like, the following week just to see what, what happened. So, I mean, that's perfect to end on a cliffhanger. Like, if you've watched, if you've ever watched the old Batman series from the 60s, like, they used to do that all the time. Will Batman or Robin escape the Riddler? Will they prevail? Tune in next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. Credits roll. That's it. Done. Fade to black. Okay, that's a proper cliffhanger. Now, he he goes on to say how The Rock came to him with catchphrases, whether it was if you smell what The Rock is cooking or any of the several, the pie eating, the eyebrow raising, yeah, just all that sort of stuff. How The Rock came up with that, how Kurt Angle got it. Because I remember watching, one of my first pay-per-views that I ever watched was, I think it was, was the first pay-per-view that I ever ordered, was Survivor Series 1999, and to this day, twenty well more um, more than twenty years later, it is still my favorite pay per view that I have ever watched. Probably because it's the first one, but I mean, you had Angle, and you had that was his debut, and you had Sean Stasiak in there, and people came out. I think they even said in this show, State or uh, Jericho and Russo, where they were trying to push Kurt. Angle as a babyface comes out to a chorus of boos, right? 
Now, Survivor Series 99 was in the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit. So he comes out to a chorus of booze. Middle of the match, whoever his referee was, says, get on the mic. Like, this is a direction from the back. So I'm assuming it came from Vince McMahon himself, where it was, get him on the mic, have him cut a promo, and turn him. Mid-match. That doesn't happen anymore, right? And they go on to say, like, there's no personality today because everybody basically sounds the same because all the promos are coming from one person. And maybe that's why... All these years later, I don't really watch the WWE as much as I used to. Because to me, like this was a magical time in the Attitude Era with Jericho. Like Jericho and The Rock. The dueling promos on Monday Night Raw. That was fantastic. Jericho goes into the story about how he, Russo, and The Rock came up with that in catering. And Jericho basically wrote that on the floor of his hotel room. Like, where is that? Nowadays, it's you have a writer. You have talent. Writer says, this is your promo. Say it verbatim. Yada, yada, yada. There's no feeling it in the moment. There's no, okay, let's go out and try this. There's no sort of give them a shot and see what happens. There's no like, let's see if he sinks. Let's see if he swims. Right? There's none of that anymore because it's all just this scripted blocky. I don't want to call it a mess, but it's this scripted blocky sort of jumbled up it, it is a it's jenga with promos and words and like a corporate mindset right it, it's just it's corporate jenga right with a wrestling corporation slapped on top of it right so again i mean you could hate russo for what he did in wcw but at least he tried okay tank abbott three count all right maybe that didn't work okay at least he tried the promo on Hulk Hogan from Bash at the Beach 2000, maybe not the best idea, I don't know, but gave it a shot, and you know, you, you're not going to know unless you try, right? How he called, like, most of the high spot matches these days, from like the Young Bucks, the Lucha Bros, anybody that does like the sort of cruiserweight style, which it, it was basically just spot fest. Now that's, they touched on that a little bit, and to be quite honest with you, like, I watch AEW, I watch the NWA Power Show, I watch bits and pieces of Raw and SmackDown, and, you know, and if you've ever seen, like, the, a Young Bucks match, it's very high-flying, it's very cruiserweighty, it's very, it, like, it has this, the feel, it has the feel of a main event, but it also has the feel, it's, it's, it's also very cruiserweight-like, and it's, the high spots are crazy, like, flying off ladders through tables, much like the Hardys did back in the early, like the late 90s and early 2000s with the Dudley Boys and Edge and Christian. It's it's very high spotty, right? Which means high risk, high reward. But if you miss, you could potentially get really hurt or even die. And nobody wants that, right? Granted, nobody teaches you how to fall off a 20-foot ladder. There's no wrestling school that'll go, okay, so this is the only safe way to fall off a 10, 15, 20-foot ladder. This is the only safe way to do a crossbody or a moonsault off the top of a cage. This is the only, like, you just don't get that kind of training. It's like they'll teach you how to take bumps. They'll teach you how to basically protect you and your opponent. But no wrestling school is ever going to go, well, this is how you do the most dangerous stunts or, well, most dangerous moves within 
wrestling where you're flying off the top of a cage or you're flying off a 20-foot ladder. It just doesn't happen like that anymore. Like, you're not going to see, and if you do, I'm probably going to, like, shut it off, where it's somebody, like, the, Shane McMahon's spots in a Hell in a Cell match, those are crazy to me. I mean, the fact that he is probably, I think he's 49 years old, or, well, by the time this episode comes out, he may be 50. And you're like, why, why are you still off the top of a 20-foot Hell in a Cell driving an elbow through, like, The Undertaker? Why? You know, like, some of my favorite matches actually do involve Shane McMahon, like that match at King of the Ring 2001 with Kurt Angle, uh, SummerSlam 2000 with Steve Blackman. The things that he put his body through, though, he's not, like, the best wrestler, but he's just the things that these guys put their, their bodies through. It's like, well, wouldn't you want to be around for a while? Like, there's no... And another note from the episode is that there's no personality because every promo basically sounds the same and every person, I don't know whether it's for fear of their job or what, but they basically all sound alike and nobody really goes out on a limb and tries something because I don't think that, I, I almost think it's frowned upon. I don't know, that's just my personal opinion and that's the feeling that I got from listening to this Jericho Russo interview. But, I mean, there are bright spots where, again, they talk about Kurt Angle, who was a legitimate Olympic gold medalist in freestyle wrestling, got the sports entertainment aspect of wrestling. Now, um, for there were too many clean finishes is what I got from this episode as well, where, like, you, they had this thing called a dusty finish, where you would basically a schmoz. Right, where it would end in like a DQ or a no contest. That is what they'd call a dusty finish. Call it like overbooking if you want. But oh, okay, what happens now? Now that they don't have a clear winner, what do you do? You tune in next week, right? But everything is all wrapped up in this nice little bow nowadays, where you know you get a clean finish on Raw or SmackDown or even on pay per view. Well, pay per view doesn't really exist anymore, but on the WWE Network. It just, it just, you have no incentive to watch again. You don't, you know, and again, I'm going back to, well, we're still talking about the stuff that Russo wrote and produced 20 years ago, but I can't really tell you what I saw on Raw. I can't really tell you what happened on SmackDown because I just don't find it interesting anymore, you know, and, and the fact that Rock... Uh, came up with all those catchphrases and brought them to Russo. And oh, uh, I think the narrative goes where Vince basically sleeps 180 minutes, which is three hours or less per day because he's a robot or at least like the Terminator and doesn't watch anything except his own product. That's pretty much a given. That's, that's pretty well known. And how he thought Stone Cold Steve Austin, the hottest star ever, can, I suppose, can we say ever? Can I say ever? Like, you could probably put Hogan up there too, but the probably the biggest star of the last, say, 25 years in Stone Cold Steve Austin, how he thought that he was the ringmaster. Now, the ringmaster had a manager, Ted DiBiase, the million-dollar man. Austin had personality. You could see that in his ECW run. You could see that in his stunning Steve Austin character down in WCW. But... Vince stuck him with Ted DiBiase and said, 
Stone, Steve Austin doesn't say a word. And even Austin said this himself. I think everybody had the resounding opinion that the Ringmaster character sucked. And Austin said this on an episode of Dale, Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s podcast. If, like, Vince, you've got a, a lot of seven-foot giants. Okay? I can't comp- I can't compete with a seven-foot giant if I don't... Like, if you give me my personality, I can compete. That's... Those are his words. Okay? And it's true. If you... Like, if you just let somebody be themselves, the greatest characters are just an extension of the actual people. Okay? Now, if you let a performer be themselves and perform, if you let the artist be the artist, then you'll have pure gold. That goose will never stop laying golden eggs. But I'm almost certain... That with the environment they have now, that they're they're comfortable because Fox just gave them a ton of money. They've made millions, if not billions, of dollars over the last say twenty five years, and they're in a comfortable spot, right? Because they were unopposed from about two thousand one when they bought WCW to this past October when. Or even, can we even say May? Maybe because that's when their first pay-per-view was. That's when Double or Nothing took place. But it was in October when Dynamite debuted on TNT. And that's when they moved uh, NXT to USA to go head-to-head on Wednesdays. And it just, you know. But my point is, I suppose the WWE are just a little too comfortable because they ran unopposed for... 18 years, like, let's face it, the children that were born in 2001 are now legally adults because they're 18, and that's how long WWE went unopposed for. But I mean, when you hear Russo talk about the things that he did in WCW and the things that he accomplished in the WWE, it's just a lot of it makes sense if you're looking at it from a writer's point of view. Like Jericho in China, that his first program was with China, Joni Lawler, who unfortunately is no longer living. But that is, that was a program that I actually really enjoyed too, because Joni Lawler was so big. Like she was legitimately, I think, over six feet tall and over 200 pounds, but she was built, right? And she was a believable character. She didn't say much, and but you believed that she could get in the ring with a guy and they could have a match. She could get in the ring with anybody and just go toe-to-toe and you believed it, okay? Like, she didn't say much, wasn't much on the mic, but when she got in the ring with somebody like a Jericho or her match with Jeff Jarrett at No Mercy 99, like, you you believed that. When she won the Intercontinental title, like, I thought it was cool when she won the IC title. I, I thought it was well done, right? Because, I mean, if she, if you put her in there with, Somebody like a Molly Holly or or say like an Ivory, because of the size discrepancy, I suppose, it almost looked like China was going to sit on them and like squash them, right? You'd, they would have been like squash, ma- squash matches. And I'm not taking anything away from someone like a Nora Greenwald or a Molly Holly or like a, a Lisa Moretti, an Ivory, or a Lita or a Trish who admittedly got better as her run went on. But I'm not taking anything away from any of those women's wrestlers, like Jacqueline, right, or Jazz. But you saw somebody like China and in the ring with, like, a Chris Jericho or a Bob Holly or Triple H or anybody, right? 
Jeff Jarrett, you saw her in the ring and you believed that she legitimately had a shot at winning the match, B, that she could legitimately kick this guy's ass and do it convincingly because she was so big. She had such a presence where it was just like, yeah, this I can get behind. And I, you know, I thought that the Jericho program with her was really well done and I, I really liked it. Okay. Well, that's just, that's all I'm saying. So then you've got things like what ifs, right? If you've been watching for as long as I have, or at least consistently, there was an angle at Survivor Series 99 where Steve Austin got hit by a car, or at least a stuntman that looked like Steve Austin got hit by a car. And that was to write him off TV for a year while he was dealing with problems with his neck, right? Now, granted, if Austin could have gotten in the ring that night, that would have been an awesome triple threat match between he, The Rock, and Triple H. I think that's the main reason I actually bought the pay-per-view, or at least I asked my parents to buy the pay-per-view because I was only 10 at the time. But so, but getting back to the what if, okay, so Austin gets hit by a car, right? And they write him off TV. If the same thing had happened to like a Rock or Jericho or a Triple H or Rikishi or whoever, right? Mick Foley, they would all act differently because they're all different people. They all have different characters. They all have different personality. So when he says there's no personality in wrestling, he's got a point. Like everybody sounds the same. Okay. You know, Austin wouldn't act the same way a Rock does. That's what makes them such great opponents, you know, or, or such great adversaries. They're, they're, Two of the biggest performers ever in wrestling, but they have two very different, distinct styles and personalities. Same thing with Rock and Hogan or, you know, Mick Foley and Triple H. They're two very different people. They're two very different personalities. They're two very different performers. Like Mick Foley will go through the route, you know, he'll put himself in harm's way every single time for the sake he'll put his body on the line like he did at king of the ring 98 like yeah let's just throw me off the top of the cell and that, like that's a crazy bump okay i wouldn't want to take that bump even if there was like a bouncy can't castle on the announce table i don't want to say no, 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 i'm afraid of heights so i wouldn't want to take that bump that's just that's not something i would do and the fact that he did it and lived to tell the tale that's crazy you know what i mean like that that's insane right and then like when the Undertaker chokeslammed him and the cage gave way, and he, he basically hit the, the mat below and was hit in the face on the way down with that chair. Like, ah, the, the things that he does. Like, that, uh, there was a match with him and Triple H at Royal Rumble 2000 where the end of the match was basically <laughs> Triple H giving uh, Cactus Jack McFoley his signature maneuver, his finishing move, the pedigree, which is basically a double underhook face buster where he drops you on your face but he gave it to him on thumbtacks and i said oh man or even where mick foley's not on the receiving end of one was his match i think it was backlash 04 where he took on randy orton and randy orton who doesn't typically wear a shirt in any of his matches took a backdrop i think it was or a suplex onto thumbtacks and those are going directly into your back like that that's crazy right it just it's things like that where you're like you know they're two very different people right so everybody's going to react differently that's i think that was the point there but i mean 
you know, I, I'm going to wrap it up here in a little bit. Like, you had, they mentioned, like, talent memorizing spots, which in turn sacrifices character. Like, again, there's not, there's not much feeling it in the moment. There's not much just going with it. It's, okay, so you come off the corner, I give you a super kick. Or, like, you, you know, springboard onto the rope, I kick you in the face. Or he tags, and then you guys give me, say, like, the 3D and then that's it. Wrap it up. Like you're just going over spots and spots and spots. Every single thing is memorized and it's down to a T to the point where it's mapped out. You know where you're going to start. You know where you're going to finish. There's no sort of like calling it in the ring or feeling it in the moment. And you sacrifice your character because everything looks the same. Everybody sounds the same. And therefore, everybody is just a carbon copy of the last person that was in the ring. And it just doesn't work as well as you would like it to and it's sad really like i just you know i think one of the things that russo is really fond of is the and i'm sure that if you're a wrestling fan even if you're not and you just come across this stuff by flipping channels most people have probably seen the george the animal steel eating a turnbuckle spot right or piece of footage like you don't see that anymore you know like Granted, you don't need to be, say, doing the cl- like a, a clown, or you don't need to be a garbage man, which is what they had with Duke, uh, the dumpster drowsy. You don't need to be Repo Man, who has a kick-ass theme song, by the way. I love that theme, Repo Man. But uh, and then you just it, it goes into like this funky sort of rock type theme. But that's another story for another time. You you don't need to be like the characters aren't as over the top as they used to be back in the 80s and early 90s, that you don't see things like George the Animal Steel eating a turnbuckle. You don't see things in wrestling that make you stop anymore. Like one of my most favorite, th- uh, one of my most favorite segments ever was probably one of the nights that I, I think it was the night that I came back into wrestling full time. September 27th, 1999. Rock, this is your life. That, this is back when Monday Night Raw used to be two hours. It ran from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern. I remember watching that and not flipping the channel. I did not change the channel. And that segment, in a two-hour program, okay, you have 120 minutes. That segment went nearly a half an hour, okay? That took up nearly a quarter of the show. And I was glued to my TV set the whole time. Because it was so funny. It was so well done. The Rock had such a personality. The catchphrases, pancakes, the Aunt Jemima. Like, they brought out actors and actresses to play, like, The Rock's home act teacher, The Rock's old football coach, The Rock's former girlfriend. And it was just, it was one of the greatest things that I'd seen as a 10-year-old kid. It's still one of the greatest segments that I remember, right? And the fact that it just basically, they improv that whole thing. You know, they're there... We, even within that segment, Mick Foley misreads the graphics or at least announces like the wrong title or the wrong name over a graphic when one of these actors or actresses comes out. And it's just it's one of the funniest things I have ever seen. OK, and I'm pretty sure Russo was he was still with the company then. And I'm pretty sure he was behind the segment with Ed Ferrara. The only thing that I could say about Russo and Ed Ferrara, the only thing I really didn't like in terms of Russo and Ed Ferrara when they went to WCW was the whole like Oklahoma thing. It just 
Like, why? I understand that it's a competition between the two companies, but why you got to take jabs at somebody for like Bell's palsy? Like, you know, I just that's the only thing I can say, right? But for the most part, if you're looking at wrestling from a writer's point of view, and your job is to basically write story and bring in viewers and increase ratings, which increases ad revenue, which increases money for everybody, performers, producers, whoever, then Russo did his job to the best of his ability. He did what he could with the product and the backing that he had. So to that end, I I can't fault Russo for anything. You know, I can't fault Russo for what he did. And he's exactly right. We're still talking about Judy Bagwell on a forklift. We're still talking about Viagra on a pole. We're still talking about the things that he did 20 years ago, the things that he implemented, the things that he wrote 20 years ago, because they were such an integral part of wrestling history. They're such an integral part of the fabric of most people's fandom of wrestling within the last, say, 20, 25 years, if not just under that. You know, of course, Russo had a run in, or a run or two with TNA. And, you know, I mean, he was saying that I think one show, their show directly after uh, Bound for Glory, which was TNA's, or still is TNA's biggest pay-per-view, or the, like their marquee pay-per-view, which is their WrestleMania. They had a post-Bound for Glory TV show where and TNA is typically two hours. Or, well, Impact Wrestling, as they're now known, is two hours. So they had a, a post-Bound for Glory TV show where... The first 45 minutes of a TV show, of their TV show, featured nothing but story, okay? And that drew the highest ratings ever for that show and that company and how Spike basically, you know, Spike TV pretty much complained or whoever, whatever network they were with at the time. Uh, they've been through so many networks that I, I forget. I think it was Destination America and then Pop TV. I'm not sure where they are now, but I'd have to look that up. But they would have to, you can't knock the formula. You write story, then they build character, which then builds an audience, which then gives you increased ratings and ad revenue. And it just, it, with story comes character, comes increase in viewership, comes increase in ad revenue, comes increase in money for everyone involved. But that is just, that's my theory and my sort of breakdown of this episode with Vince Russo on talk to Jericho. And then they get into Jericho coming over from WCW to WWE, his meeting with Vince McMahon uh, before he went over to the land of McMahon. And then what happened after Russo left, where I suppose Jericho was like the guy, you know, he had the rug pulled out from underneath him where everything just kind of stopped and he had to build it all up again, which he did. Thankfully, like, here we are more than 20 years later, and he's a fixture in wrestling. He's the front man for Fozzie. He's TV personality, a best-selling author. He's basically a renaissance man when it comes to everything sports, entertainment, music-related. So kudos to Chris Jericho. Thank you for interviewing Vince Russo. This was a great episode for me to listen to. I mean, I've listened to it about three times already, and I'm going to go back for more just to see if there's anything I missed. But if you want to be a guest on a future episode of the Beats and Speaks podcast, because this wraps it up for this week, this debut episode in 2020 of the Beats and Speaks podcast, if you want to be a guest, 
please do email me at leetdickey at gmail.com. Find all the episodes on in the archives at my official website, leetdickey.com. It's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Please do like, comment, share, subscribe. Find us on YouTube as well under Lee Dickey TV. Rate us five stars. I will feature them right here on the Beats and Space Podcast and my official website, leetdickey.com. You can leave reviews on my official Facebook page as well. Facebook.com slash Lee T. Dickey, as well as the official Beats and Speaks podcast landing page on LeeTDickey.com. All the links in the description, but I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. This first episode of 2020, Happy New Year to you all. We will talk to you all next week for a brand new episode of the Beats and Speaks podcast. I am your host, Lee Dickey, and I am signing off. Peace! ttdicky.com